Now, Habakkuk uh, is subtitled, Asking God Tough Questions. Let me just tell you this. The questions are not tough to God. They're only tough on us. Sometimes we're living in the fog. See why we put that up there? We, we, are, in, we are confounded by what God does and, and sometimes who he is. We just don't understand. And if you have a list of grievances that you are writing out in your life that you wanna be able to talk to God about one day, you know, this long list, and I stand before him, I'm gonna ask him all, let me just say this to you. When you get into his presence, that list is gonna evaporate because you're going to be overwhelmed with his greatness and his glory and his sovereignty and his goodness and his wisdom. Your list will just go away. You will not have questions in heaven. You'll be too busy laying your life before him. That's how great he really is. Now, what can we learn from a book that was written about 2,600 years ago? Is that even relevant to 21st century people? Three reasons, God hasn't changed, human nature hasn't changed, and our need for grace and mercy and divine intervention hasn't changed, right? So you're going to find this extremely relevant. In fact, I'll, I'll challenge you with this. If after these four weeks, if you're with us for these four weeks, either in person or online, and you send me a note, and you say, nothing you said was relevant in my life whatsoever, uh, I'm gonna burn my preaching card. There's only one caveat to that, and that is that you have to preach the book of Haggai for the next four weeks. And we'll see how relevant it is when you teach it, right there, for sure. Now, we don't know anything about the personal life of Habakkuk except apparently how he looks. <laughs> uh, there in that picture, I don't have no idea how they got that sort of a, a symbolism. The thing that makes this book different is that it is a dialogue between he and the Lord. See, most prophets are saying, thus saith the Lord, is speaking to the people, right? This is a conversation between the Lord and Habakkuk. In other words, we're eavesdropping on kind of a private conversation here, all right? And uh, you'll be amazed at how raw and real this whole thing is. Uh, the pattern of the book is simple. He starts out with great disorientation, confounding, confused, troubled. And toward the end of the book, he comes to a place of reorientation, of real trust and hope in God no matter what happens. In that fourth uh, week, will challenge us to ask the question, am I trusting God no matter what happens in my life? It's gonna be a really huge issue uh, that we face. You're always better off starting out with disorientation in life and then moving to uh, reorientation, okay? Rather than your other way around. Like you start out like a house of fire. You know, you're on fire for God and then as time goes on, life beats you up and uh, things happen and things you can't explain wear you down. And uh, toward the end of your life, you're cold and cynical and shut down and disappointed. You don't wanna end your life like that. And some of you may be on the road to that if you're not careful. There's nothing worse than a bitter old person. You know bitter old people? They're terrible. Not because they're not valuable, but because uh, they just ended their life uh, in this kind of crotchety cynicism. Don't be that person, all I can tell you. Now, why don't you stand with me? We're gonna read the first four verses of this book, Habakkuk 1. Again, I said it's between Nahum and Zephaniah, so that will help you uh, figure out where it is. Just flip through there, you might, you're liable to run across it, okay? 
Habakkuk chapter one, verses one through four, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Fathers, we begin this book for this month. Open our eyes to the grand truths and the applications, the meaning of this passage. And just give us much grace as we continue through it. And we'll trust you for the results. Uh, we're totally dependent on you for everything we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Habakkuk's first complaint, three sections. His, his complaint, God's answer, and then his second complaint. In, in these four verses, we have his first complaint. Here is a man full of confusion and grief. This is the disorientation we're talking about. For a long time now, he's been subjected to the moral disintegration of his nation. Say, what nation is that? The southern kingdom, Judah. Okay, the northern kingdom has long been assimilated and taken off by the Assyrians. Now the southern kingdom still existed, and the capital, of course, of that southern kingdom is what? Jerusalem, okay? And he is looking at this nation and saying it's falling apart. There's no laws that are applied fairly. There's destruction and violence, iniquity, which is sin, idolatry, all these things were going on in his own country. I see the word violence in verses two and three. It's a real interesting word. Um, the Arab, Arabic word for Hamas, you know that term, are you familiar with that term in today's uh, political reality, right? Uh, the word Hamas means enthusiasm. It's also a acronym for the Islamic resistance movement. They, they reside in Gaza. The Hebrew word, Hamas, which is found twice in verses two and three, is violence. So it's interesting that when the Hebrews hear the word Hamas, they interpret that as violence. You know, that's, that's the, uh, it's not a very good PR thing if you're Hamas trying to say, hey, we're, we're good people, you can trust us, right? Uh, the Isra Israelis wouldn't feel that way based on the word. Now you say, well, yeah, this, this looks like uh, uh, a lot of nations today, even, even the United States, regardless of your political stripe, where you're coming from politically, you look at oppression, you look at violence, you look at wickedness, you know, lawlessness, uh, perversions, and you think, yep, that's, that's where we are, that's our country. But let me tell you the first reference point for this, the first application is not the, our nation, okay? It's the church. You say, why? Because Judah was a covenant nation. You know what that means? They were people belonging to God. There's no other nation on the face of the earth since Israel that is a covenant nation. Only Israel, of all the nations of the earth, were called a covenant people. Now, the covenant people of God is the church. We are the ones who possess the promises and the inheritance of this particular uh, blessing, these particular blessings. And so, if you're going to apply the challenges of 
verses one through four, you first look at the church and say, what's going on inside you know, the church of Jesus Christ? And one of the distinguishing features of their disobedience, there's a lot of civic and moral things and social things in here, but what you'll notice, it says in verse four, it says the law is paralyzed. You know that word law, you know what that word is? Uh, Torah. Uh, that's the first five books of Moses. Uh, what Habakkuk is saying is, hey, nobody pays attention to the, to the word of God anymore. <laughs> We're not paying attention to it. We're just ignoring it. It's, it's numbed, it's paralyzed. It has no more effect, it has no more power. And that speaks to me. Because the question I have to ask myself all the time in my life is, what do I think about the Bible? What does the church think about the Bible? Do you realize that there are entire denominations that have simply gone down the drain, have lost their orthodoxy, they've lost their biblical borings because they've basically rejected the Bible as the authoritative word of God? You understand that? Every denomination that collapses from a, from a historic orthodox standpoint always begins with questions about the Bible, where reason becomes more important than revelation, all right? So the question to you is, what do you think about the Bible? You're sitting here today, what is, what is your relationship with this book? I'm not saying you should love it for the sake of itself, you should respect it for what it teaches and who it describes and what the plan of salvation is, right? Uh, is the Bible to you just a collection of, uh, you know, sort of inspiring stories or pithy wisdom? Or is it, is it to you the authoritative word of truth from which everything about life and faith you learn? You, de you derive your sense of life and faith and truth from this. If, if that's not happening, uh, your life is in danger. You're, you're at risk of, of falling away and of disintegrating spiritually. In other words, I'll put it to you this way. If, if the Bible is a take it or leave it book for you, say, I can, you know, I can accept it or I can, I, I, other things, I, I will tell you this, you will leave it unless it becomes the source of your life and of your hope. That's the only way that we should be able to uh, sort of understand this and approach it. But the key drama in this first section is the crisis of unanswered prayer. Uh, there's all the problems in the country, but the thing that really bothers him is that God's not listening. Look at verse two. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, Hamas and you will not save. I'm asking you. And so there's two questions that come out of this. The first is how long? And the second is why? Let me, let me tell you that these questions haunt all of us. If you're a Christian, you, you've had to ask how long? You've had to ask why questions. Let me give you some examples. These are things that happen you know, in the life of our church. How long will my mother linger with her failing body? We have a woman in our church whose mother has ALS. She's only in her 50s. 
How long is she going to linger with that? And you do not answer. How long must I endure my adult son's destructive decisions? We have people going through that. And you will not answer. How long will my ex-spouse keep pulling my children away from me? Co-opting them, telling them things about me that are not true, and you don't answer. How long must I wait before a life partner comes into my orbit and you don't answer? Let me remind you, you're in good company if you have how long questions. Let me show you some of these verses that are in the scriptures. Psalm 6.3, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? See, the Bible is not a book of wax figures in a museum of nobility. The Bible is describing people who are struggling with life at the deepest level, asking how long questions that don't have answers right away. We also ask why questions. Why did my mother die when I was 14 years old? In my tenure here at Wildwood, I've had to bury many young people, you know, that have died in younger ages. Why? And you don't answer. Why do great stable couples struggle getting pregnant and people who are irresponsible have 10 children? Why? You have a child that's struggling with pregnancy and you're just, you're just burdened for them? Why? Life seems so unfair. Why does a precious little boy in our church have to deal with cancer? Why are my children so indifferent when I tried to raise them to honor you? When people prayed for them, and then they go to college and they walk away. Why? See, these, these are inscrutable things. You don't answer. On all of these vexing questions, there, there couldn't be the sounds of silence. You know, this, just nothing. You don't hear, you don't know. Now people say God always answers. He answers yes, no, or wait. And I think that's probably true. But is that really helpful? If you're in the middle of a crisis, Philip Yancey talks about a man named Carl. Carl was a well-conditioned military person who fell off his bike. He had a, like a, a drain and just went over it, paralyzed from the, uh, the waist down or the, the neck down. He says, my Air Force career ended, physical therapy replaced my workout routine and I'm still coming to terms with my new identity as a disabled person. This is Carl. 
We talked about the adjustments he faced, moving to an accessible home, losing his military career, living with no bladder or bowel control, you think about that, fighting muscle spasms, internal infections, having steel rods implanted along his spinal column. And after listening to him describe these hardships, I was stunned to hear what he said next. I must say though, there's been one change more difficult than any of those adjustments, even more difficult than the why questions I can't help ask. God's presence has withdrawn. Just when I need God the most, I can no longer sense him. I keep on praying and believing, but it's as if I'm praying to the ceiling. I get no response. Does that freak you out? It bothers me. What do you do with that, right? Well, Yancey says this. He says, you know, as I think about it, all these why and how long prayers are still prayers. He's just not saying into the wind, how long, why? He's asking you, still praying, still believing in the midst of silence. I, I really love the advice by a spiritual director named, I think, Thomas Green, that if you're experiencing spiritual dryness right now, you're not sure where God is in your life, you're asking why questions, you're asking how long questions, you don't, you don't know where any of this is going, and you think maybe you're to blame, you know, you've done something where you've just, you think, well, God's cut off from me, or I'm under discipline. He, he reminds us that if, if you have a friend who all of a sudden cuts himself off from you, and never tells you why, isn't that kind of immature to do that? If you have a friend who cuts you off and all of a sudden you, know, you have a Facebook, you know, the next thing you're defriended. You don't know why, right? It's immature. Why would God do that to you? Why would he cut you off and not tell you? So this is the prayer. Lord, you care for me more than I care for myself. I cannot believe that you are playing guessing games with me. If the dryness I experience is due to some failing of mine, Make it clear, I'll seek to remedy it, but I will not entertain vague doubts unless and until you make my failings clear to me, I will assume that it is not the reason for dryness. Does that make sense? I'm just gonna say, I'm in a period now where there is silence. Can I live with that? Can you live with that? That's a question that Habakkuk had to face. And apparently in the scriptures, a lot of people have had to face. Now, what happens next? The Lord answers, finally, at least this first section, and he says this in verse five, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And he says this, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's the Babylonians that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Then down in verse 11, they're guilty men whose own might is their God. The Lord answers Habakkuk in the most disturbing way. He says, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do as a result of the sin in Judah I'm gonna discipline 
and deport you. You're going into captivity. Now, historically, there were three invasions. The Babylonians uh, invaded uh, Judah in 605 and 597, and then again in 586. And in 586, the temple, that Solomon's temple, was destroyed and the city of Jerusalem was burned. And all these people were taken to Babylon. That's where Daniel goes to Babylon and all that, that kind of stuff, right? Good people were taken away. And if you're waiting for the rapture, oh, I just want the rapture to come so that, you know, I can get out and escape all this. God's people have always had to go through very difficult things. You realize that? The character of the Babylonians was bitter, dreaded, fearsome, violent. They were scoffers. That's the description here in verses 5 through 11. And um, they fought wars differently than uh, even modern people fight them. I remember uh, this. Uh, today's June 6th, June 6th, 1944. The Allies invaded, not invaded, but uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy to seek to defeat the Nazis. And I'm pretty sure that our soldiers... Uh, the British, American, and Canadian soldiers were, were taught the, the rules of warfare to some degree, okay? We have a, there's a, a, like a manual here that I just pulled out of uh, the website. This is, a, this is a, from the U.S. War Department. It was from 1940, and it says rules of land warfare. Now, what this means is, how do we treat prisoners of war? How do we treat wounded enemy combatants? How do we treat non-combatant civilians, right? In other words, there was an attempt, even though it was violated many, many times, there was an attempt at showing mercy and compassion to people who were, you know, um, weak and vulnerable, right? There was an attempt to do that in our own military. I'm sure that military people still learn these things. The Babylonians had none of that. They would just slit your throat in a moment's notice. In fact, if you read... Psalm 79, this is Psalm of Asaph, which would have occurred right after the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. This is the Babylonian invasion. This is Habakkuk's prophecy. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. These are just dead bodies laying out all over the place the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. This is the kind of people that they were. Talk about awful. But the thing to note is the thing that we have to ask about ourselves, okay? And it's found in verse seven. It says, they are dreaded and fearsome their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That's a very key point. Let me just tell you, this is true of all unbelievers. Every unbeliever you know, including your grandma, if she doesn't know Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say this to you. I'm a Christian by the grace of God, all right? I'm not a Christian because I'm better than anybody. I'm not a Christian because I'm wiser and smarter. I'm not a Christian for any reason than that God in his grace open my eyes. So I, I understand 
why non-Christians act like non-Christians. Because I would act like a non-Christian too, apart from divine grace. Do you understand that about yourself? You know that to be true? You say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a very moral person. Why don't you eliminate that nonsense from your thinking? Well, you may be moral, but, but you're lost if you're not a Christian. And the only reason I am is because God showed me his mercy. But here, here's what every non-Christian experiences. It says their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What does that mean? Well, they make up their own rules for life. That's what their justice is. I'm gonna decide right and wrong. I'm gonna decide who I am. I'm gonna decide my gender. I'm gonna decide my sexuality. I'm gonna decide what person it is. I'm gonna decide uh, that I'm this and I'm that. I'm gonna decide these things. That's what's going on in our culture today. Because we've lost any sense of objective truth. People always decide for themselves what they wanna do. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's an age old problem. That's the problem of every unbeliever. Even religious people decide what they're going to pick and choose to believe. If you're a true Christian, you're under the authority of Almighty God and you say, Lord, whatever you say, I do. Whatever you teach, I believe. You see the difference? Now, it says dignity comes from them. In other words, they're creating their own sense of value. Not just what's right and wrong, but how do I gain value? What I do? my education, my money, my strength. I'm creating my own sense of value. If you're a Christian, you can't create your own sense of value. Your value comes because God loves you and made you in his image and redeemed you through Jesus. That's why you have value. That's why your life matters and why you are a significant person. In other words, your, your, your reactions to this stuff are diametrically opposed to that of a non-Christian. But that's who the Babylonians were. Uh, they, notice they were glory thieves. They took glory that only God should get and took it on to themselves. Now, this leads to a, a, a deeper problem in Habakkuk's life. Let me just look at verses 12 now and following. Here, here's a second complaint. Okay, I don't know if we have that. The second complaint is this, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, or some translations say you shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Here's the key. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What is he saying here? I can't believe, God, that you would take this wicked and cruel nation, the Babylonians, who you're about to raise up, and make them punish the covenant people. This, this created huge moral dilemmas in Habakkuk's thinking. Why would you do that? And it raises the problem of evil, the whole question of how God can use evil to bring about his purposes. And what adds to the anguish is that the more you know that God is great, right? Sovereign, wise, you know, merciful, the more you understand his nature, the more you can struggle with evil. Because you're thinking, what's the point? What is he doing? 
And it leads to this uh, universal question, how can we explain evil in the world, especially if you believe God is all powerful and all good, right? Uh, what non-Christians say is, well, if God is all good, he can't be all powerful. And if he's all powerful, he can't be all good. Because this terrible evil exists, right? And many insist that this is the single strongest objection to the existence of God. Does, does the problem of evil ever really bother you? You say, well, I, don't, I just kind of live my life. I don't really think about it. But do you, do you, have you ever confronted evil? I mean, I mean where something is, I, there are things in the paper that I read, that I try to read, I can't even finish them because they're so horrible. Things that happen to children, uh, abuses, things that have happened in your life that you don't even want to talk about, that just, just trigger you because you, you have memories of, of awful things that have happened to you and you say, how can there be a God? These things are visceral. Well, I mean by visceral is that, that hits you right here. See, atheism is not something you think your way to. I've always said it's something you cry your way to. You, you mourn your way to atheism. Because you say, how can there be a God if that were to happen to me? And, and, and listen, I'm totally sympathetic to this destructive evil in the world. Perhaps the classic example is uh, Eliezer Weissel, right? Remember him, don't you? Eliezer Weissel, he wrote the book Night. He describes his experiences in the Nazi uh, death camps. He says simply this, never shall I forget those flames which consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. That is visceral and that is powerful. Because if evil exists at this rampant industrial strength level, how can there be a God? That's his conclusion, right? What might be helpful, and of course it's worthy of further discussion and even personal discussion is to realize that some of you are troubled by this. You, you get it, you're going to go to philosophy classes and some professor's going to say, well, the problem of evil basically destroys our, our confidence that there's a, such a thing as God. You know, you, get, you may, I hope your professor isn't that bad, but you get the idea, right? You're, you're just going to, and you're going to sit there and go, yeah, if you're not careful. C.S. Lewis, who is a pretty cool scholar, right? He said, he said this, he said, I, I began to realize that the problem of evil is a greater problem for my atheism than it is for my theism. In other words, it presents more confounding things about me being an atheist. And here's the reason why. All of us revolt against evil because we have this sense of moral revulsion and a sense of obligation to do something about it. Evil is so evil that we just revolt, repulsed by it. And the question is, where does that revulsion and repulsion come from? Where is the sense of moral obligation to want to deal with it? He says that is a greater proof of the existence for God than the existence that he doesn't exist, or the proof that he doesn't exist. 
and I think he's right. When I have this great revulsion, when I see things or hear things, it's because there's something real behind all that that's saying to me, and none of this should ever be true. And the only reason that makes any sense is that if there is a divine God in heaven that understands and sees all this and sovereignly works his purposes in ways that I don't understand. I think the problem of evil proves the existence of God rather than the other way around. Otherwise, you wouldn't care or you shouldn't care because if atheism is true, evolution is true, none of it matters, it's just life, get over it. But you know better than that because you know that it's wrong. Why is it wrong if there's not a God, right? Now, if you want the real answer to this dilemma, you have to come back next week. It's one of those serial movies in the old days when you had to come back, spend your five cents next week and get your popcorn, come back. But we're gonna talk about what the Lord says to him next week, but I wanna end with some observations, just a couple observations about chapter one, okay, that might be helpful to you. First of all, I want you to notice the honesty in Habakkuk's prayer. His prayers are too real and raw for the average religious person who just says, you know, God is great, God is good, now we thank him for our food. By his hand we all are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread, amen. See, if, if that's your prayer life, you're never gonna pray a Habakkuk's prayer because it's too visceral, it's too real, it's too raw, it's too personal. Religious people don't pray, pray this kind of prayer. They, they wouldn't attempt to because they think, well, it's not nice. Habakkuk wasn't nice. In fact, he indicts the Lord a couple times. He says, why, why do you idly look at wrong? I'm not saying we should ever accuse God. I, I don't, that, that's, that's inappropriate to put him on the, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the stand as a, as a defendant. I mean, that, who, who are you to do that? But he, he comes real close to, to saying, God, you, you're idle. What, what person would ever say that unless he had a real relationship with God? What's your prayer life like? Is it nice? Does it exist? Or is it as real as this? That's a question you have to think about. Secondly, notice that he never gives up on God. All those psalmists never give up on God. They ask how long questions, they ask why questions, but they're still prayers. They never stop praying, and many times these disorientations at the beginning turn into reorientations at the end. Psalm 73 is a great example. You know, I don't understand God, I don't understand the world, why the world's like it is. And then finally he says, oh, I have no one in heaven but you. There's reorientation if you wait long enough. The question is, are you giving up in your prayers because you say, well, that doesn't work. That's not, that's not the sign of belief. They say, well, that didn't work. I prayed, nothing happened. R real faithful people continue to seek God, even in the midst of the, uh, of the dryness, of the heartache. I didn't mention to you that Carl, remember Carl, the guy that had all the medical problems here in this story, you know? You know what Carl does? Carl's a chaplain in a nursing home. He gets around in a wheelchair and talks to other people about, about Jesus. 
In spite of the fact he says, I, I, I'm not hearing much from God. He's not given up. And I believe he's been in places where God has shown up for him since then. Thirdly, I want you to notice how serious the Lord is about your holiness. He allowed the covenant people to suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. This is one of the aspects of God's holiness. I think there's going to be a, a push in this. David was just telling me to speak about the holiness. You know, not legalism, but just the desire for holiness. God is a holy God and calls his people to holiness. Is there something you're doing in your life where you say, yeah, I take 90% of the Bible, it's true, but you know, there's 10% over here, I don't listen to it, and I kind of do what I want. My sexual life, or you know, my money, or you know, my, my lack of forgiveness towards somebody, you know, just, just the way it goes. You can't do that. If he went to these extremes to deal with his people, I'm not saying he's about to drop the hammer on you, but wh why would you put yourself in a place where God had to deal with you in discipline? Because he loves you. He took Israel down to the nub. He can do that to you, he can do that to the church. If we're not going to be faithful as Christ followers. Then lastly, understand this. His silence doesn't mean his absence. Just because he's silent doesn't mean he's absent. Joseph found this out in the Old Testament. And if you struggle with why questions, and all of us do, understand this one thing. Your Savior, Jesus, also endured why questions. At one critical point in his journey, toward the end of his life, when he hung on a cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt abandoned and alone and forsaken. Now, it didn't last long, but one moment of him being separated from the Father is worth an eternity of our being separated from the Father. Why have you forsaken me? He knows forsakenness. And he did that so that you would live and you'd never ever have to be forsaken again by God. So even though there may be a gap, even though there's a why question, even though there's a how long question, I'm gonna ask you not to give up. Pray for me that I wouldn't give up and say, well, you know, this doesn't work. That's Western consumerism. But we need our people to say, God, I'm gonna pursue you because I have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And that's the first lesson here in Habakkuk. Trusting God in the midst of the unknowns. Now you come back next week and we're gonna see what God's answer was to this great problem of evil and difficulty Habakkuk faced.